before this all happens, do you want to see that my children are at a, uh, a puppy party? I think the idea of They're having a puppy, party. a puppy party for children. I've never heard of I have, have I heard crazy, of this? Because like, they do this with old people homes. Oh, where you God. bring puppies and dogs to That's old people homes. Yeah. So now you're doing this for kids. So your children right now yeah. are at a birthday party featuring puppies. That's why I'm here because my wife, uh, she, we timed it so that she was at the party. And kind of, here's what's a bummer. Like I, every weekend I go to a birthday party, but it's typically a bouncy house in a park. And I eat half of a Domino's pizza and then have horrible regret for the rest of the day. But that's all people serve at these kids' birthday parties of pizza. And so this week, uh, the, it was a... Uh, a puppy party where they have like, I don't know, 12 puppies. Those poor puppies. Right? They're it's like a, mauled, it's like a getting puppy mauled by little children. <laughs> like, like all week, those puppies are like, oh, good. The weekend's coming. Oh, oh Saturday and Sunday. Oh, God damn it. Lord. Do you think that, uh, that there's some injuries? There has to be some puppy injuries when you have like three and four and five year olds playing well, with puppies. Well, we take Hannah to the petting zoo. Someone's going to get their leg broken. <laughs> At Studio City when she was like two and she was holding like a hamster by its neck. Yeah, of course. Like choking yeah, it. Yeah, of way. course. And the people were like, hey, put the hamster down. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if you're a puppy, you could probably only put up with like what two puppy parties max. I guess then you're like in retirement, and hopefully you'll get adopted. But well, I that's mean, what Jesus happens. Christ. It's like uh, it's like the greyhounds. Once they can't race anymore, they just you know get taken out back. Shot. It's not a puppy anymore. No. Once that puppy grows up, they go get rid of the puppy. They're good at kids' parties, though. We are talking to one of my favorite people. Uh, someone I've worked with and someone who I enjoy immensely. Uh, he is a stand-up. He's an actor. He's a director. He's a producer. He is a writer. His name is Jamie Kaler. Yeah. Jamie Kaler. Welcome to the Brando cast. This I'm is the, so excited. This is the Brando cast. Yes, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for now, having me. You have no idea what we're going to do today. No, and that's really, I love that. You tried to kind of explain it to me out front. He was like, let me go through the, uh, the here's the, and I go, no, ah, ah, don't tell me anything. I just kind of like, for me, it's more creative just to be like, follow where are we going well here's where so we're don't going. mess me up don't drag me down a cliff. i am going to read you the the history of a particular band that is one of my favorites uh which is a band that you may or may not like or not know too much about i which is i i'm more intrigued by that because i like that because i feel like i'm quite an audiophile like i we talk music before yes, we and do. although we we venture off a little differently you're a heavy metal guy and i'm probably more of a new wave uh, Clash. You're a big Springsteen of. guy. I know I that. I do love Springsteen, but I, when I came up, it was more Elvis Costello, The Clash. Right. I was kind of the pretender. So this is the kind of band that you may have strayed from because the cool kids were not listening to this particular band. If I gave you three guesses, you would probably guess what band we're about to listen to. Okay. But as soon as super producer Richard Sheltinga, who's sitting here to my right, lays it on us. <laughs> I just heard them on the drive over here. On what? Uh, on the radio, I heard uh, Limelight. <laughs> I love this band. That's Rush. You do love Rush. I love Rush. But how much do you know about Rush? I, I, I saw the documentary okay. that just was on, so I actually know a fair amount about Rush, I All feel right. like. Well, oh, then I'm going to lay it on you, though. Uh, We're going to get it. into some uh, a little bit of detail. Rush. The legendary Hall of Fame trio, consisting of childhood buddies Geddy Lee, Alex Lifeson, and one of the greatest drummers of all time, Mr. Neil Peart. 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 Oh, it is actually okay. pronounced Peart. So I'm learning something. Right. Well, Americans, you know, we botch. Peart. 
we've always called him Perk, but his real name is Neil Peart. So, you do like Rush. I love Rush. Do you remember the first time you heard Rush? Yeah, in high school. Uh, and I also remember seeing, I think I saw the dudes, some kid's uh, patch on the back of his jean jacket uh, with a Rush. It's a great name. And I, I remember because we had the jean jackets and we had the patches that yeah. we would sew on to our, ja- our jean jackets. And I remember seeing Rush and then it had to be God, junior year maybe or something. And I heard um, um, was it Moving Pictures, right? Yeah. With mm-hmm. uh, Tom Sawyer, I think was the first thing I heard. Um, Red Barchetta. Red Barchetta's on, on Moving Pictures. I don't Pictures, know the absolutely. albums. Here's the thing. I probably don't have a whole, I've, I've never had a whole album of them. Well, and we're going to get, them we're gonna get into a little bit of that. We're going to get into a little bit of that too, because I believe that Rush is one of the most amazing live bands of all time, which is also the thing that helped them get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. A 40 plus year career of kicking ass live. And never being a, a, a critic's darling, and never being a journalist's favorite, never being on Rolling Stone, never never really getting airplay past Tom Sawyer. Yeah, they weren't a spirit of the radio. Close to that, they, they and Limelight maybe. Well, because a lot and of the Limelight stuff was weird from the Paul Rudd movie. Right. Uh, well, now people our age are putting them in positions of pop culture. That's the cool thing about Rush is like the people that were like the nerds in high school who are now actually making stuff. That's right. Are including Rush and stuff. It was a guy nerd band. There were no women at the concert. No, so it was no, all no, dude. No, no, it was no, a dude no. fest. It's, it's, a, it's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's a dude oh, band. But for three, I mean, they are three freak musicians as well. Well, and that's another reason why they're so popular. So formed in 1968. I did in not know Toronto, that. Canada, 1968. Wow. Okay. Childhood friends, Alex Lifeson and Getty Lee, they went to grade school together mm-hmm. where they, uh, and they were outcasts in their little grade school there in Willowdale, uh, Toronto, Ontario. And they discovered with each other that they had a love of music. Uh, they formed a band as teenagers. And uh, by the late 60s, early 70s, they were playing in all the bars of Toronto. The original drummer was a guy named John Rutsey. So there was an original drummer. There I was a guy that. before Neil I Pert. Knew that, I knew Neil Pert came in. And when they got signed, they still had that drummer, Mr. John Rutsey. And because John was having some health problems mm-hmm. and maybe not up to speed, they actually got rid of John Rutsey after they released their first record before they went on tour. And that's when they got Neil Pert. So they did a shuffle. I they think did an early shuffle. They did a Pete Best. Have you ever been John Rutseed or Pete Best in some way in your life? I've Jamie been Pete Kaler? Bested a lot. I feel like <laughs> I, I feel like I've been. I mean, honestly, still to this day, I get I get a Pete Besting, which sounds filthy. That sounds like a dirty Sanchez. Like how it happened Friday night? Oh, I got Pete Bested. It just what when we went. Just asked to leave because yeah. you're not up to snuff. We were in that Irish pub in doing. Santa Monica. We all go into the restroom for you know to do a couple bumps of coke, and all of a sudden I got Pete Bested. And I woke up in a dumpster in the back. You were a bartender at a I Irish did. bar in I Santa did. Monica. <laughs> there was some there was some hidden truth in that story that I just told. That wasn't just a crazy no. I'm, oh, is that why no, you I got didn't, fired? I, didn't, from I didn't no, I never got fired. I didn't Did you know I never got fired? But here's what happened is the first season of my boys, I never gave my shifts up. I had that job officially for like almost ten years. And I didn't work the last two years of that. I just gave my shifts away every week. So while we, we, no, here's a quick I still quick officially was on the payroll. Jamie Kaler was one of the lead uh, actors on the TBS sitcom, My Boys. I was a writer on that show. Mm-hmm. That's how we met. Probably the five best years of my life. I, we, I just talked to Bunin about this yesterday. But you are, and Michael Bunin was another character on the show, yeah. Kenny, for those yeah, of you Reed playing Scott, along Yeah, Reed Scott, who's on Veep. 
Kyle Howard, George Jordan Spiro. Spiro, who's a Jim a, Gaffigan, Jim who's Gaffigan. a failed comedian. Yes, he's, he was he's, on that show. He's going to make it one day. I'm sure he will. Yeah, I feel bad for him because he's just not. He's not a good stand-up. No, he's um, all joking I aside. Hope he finds it. I all hope joking he finds aside, it. Gaffigan is one of the best stand-ups who ever has lived. Oh, I, without question. Without question. You have the to economy see, of words. Every time I watch him, I'm like, God. Damn it, has he write those? You have to see Jim live, yeah. and Jim live in a city outside of Los Angeles. Like, I've seen him in Boston, mm-hmm. and as you know, because you're from New England, Boston bros fucking love Jim Gaffigan. Yo, Jim Gaffigan! Holy shit. Well, you know, shit. I was a huge fan of his before I even was acting. Right. He, was, he was a road guy back in those days, and I was a huge comedy fan, and I remember I went to some bachelor party in Arizona, and um, we all went from San Diego. I was still in the Navy at the time, and we went to San Diego. And I didn't even know Gaffigan at all. I didn't know anybody. And I, uh, I was out there for a bachelor party, and the and everyone's like, "We're going to strip clubs." And I go, "Hey, actually, Gaffigan's at the Improv." And they were like, "What?" And I dragged like twelve dudes to the Improv to see Gaffigan. Wow. And he, and they were like, "That was the best bachelor." He's a fucking killer. He's a killer, man. He's a killer. But you you could have gone back to bartending during my voice. I had Wednesday had and you Sunday won- shifts. So I had, I only had two shifts for like nine years and they were great. And so I would, you know, I mean, one time I had shot an episode of Friends and then the next week went back to work or whatever. And then a few months later that episode airs and one night I am, uh, I'm at the bar and I'm, I'm taking orders and this dude goes to order and the TV's over my head and I'm on Friends. Absolutely true story. I'm on Friends over my head and the guy goes to order, he goes, let me get a, uh, hey man, that's. You're on Friends. Look at that. And I look up and there was like this wave of like, oh my God, I am an actor. I'm not a bartender. And then as I came back, he goes, that's cool. Hey, can I get two beers, a Greyhound and a Bloody Mary? And I was like, oh, back to reality. Fuck. This is painful. Yeah. So I had that job. I mean, even through, I, every time I'd book a job, I'd take a week off. And so when I booked my boys, I just got the shifts covered. And then like a year and a half later, the manager, I hadn't worked in a year and a half, but each week I would talk to buddies and go, you got Wednesday, you got Sunday. And they would beg me for the shifts. And then finally the manager called. He's like, I don't think you work here anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, you didn't. And even then You're I, was like, on the I show. was like, I still was like not going to give it up. Were those like prime shifts that you couldn't give up? Just I like- was alone. At the bar, I, was, I had a Wednesday and Sunday shift. There was nobody else behind the stick. This is O'Brien's in Santa Monica? So any Wednesday, Sunday, I'd make like three or 400 bucks. Back wow. in those days, I would get shitty drunk. And then meet women. It was cool. Was it cool? It was like hosting my own party at my own apartment that was an Irish pub. Was O'Brien's in Santa Monica a New England Patriot bar? It was the nights I was there. But here was here was what's funny. I was the only American <laughs> when I first got the job there. I was the I was the fucking token Yank. They called me. Oh, so Irish they, people hung they out called there. They called me. They worked there. They called me oh, Sherman Tank. Oh, 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 you know oh. how they do the rhyme thing? Yeah. I didn't know what it meant forever. They're like, fucking Sherman Tank's here. Wait, what does Sherman Tank it mean It rhymes with token yank. Oh. And I was the token yank oh. because everybody else, they weren't going to hire me because I was you American. you are Irish, Irish American. I'm of Irish descent. And yes. if you talk to Irish people from Ireland and you say you're Irish, they, fucking they will you. light you yeah, up. Right. So the dude, what he goes, I can't fucking hire you, boy. You're fucking, you're not fucking Irish. And I and I, my mother's Dwyer and we're Driscolls and we're like I'm pretty I'm bright red head yeah. and so uh, I wrote in this crazy long letter that said I was an Irishman trapped in an American body and he fucking laughed you're a funny boy <laughs> and he hired and they hired me and I got the job one of the greatest moments of my life I was in New York 
uh, uh, my friend Amit Zappa and I were doing a, a cartoon for MTV mm-hmm. and our executive was Irish and he took us to his favorite Irish bar in Manhattan. It was a place called St. Dymphna's down in the village somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I had a leather jacket, like a European style leather jacket. And I walked in and my friend, uh, Dave McGrath introduces me to the bartender who's a real Irish. And he says, this is my friend, Brendan. And the guy said to me, how long you over for? <laughs> and I, and I hadn't said a word. So I felt like I passed. And that was like a really big moment. You look Irish. Yeah, You're well, black Irish though, man. I am black Irish. Um, during the troubles, you should have been like, I'm just here. I'm here. I'm here getting weapons. I'll be here about two months. I've got a satchel full of cash. But as soon as I get my weapons, we're taking the boat back. He's like, good boy, dude. There, I mean, I New York Irish. I mean, that's you know, Hell's Kitchen. That's, no? that's where you go and you, you gotta lay low. You don't fuck with the Westies. I, IRA people gotta yeah. lay low for a while. The fucking Westies. <laughs> <laughs> so, you want to know who uh, Rush opened for on uh, one of their early tours? Yes, Uriah Heep. That's so. It, I find the whole premise of people who have opened for others so interesting, and then they. And, then they pass them, of course. Well, no, they, they opened up for Uriah Heep early on. And mm-hmm. then one of the other bands that they opened up for early on was Kiss. Kiss I knew the Kiss. Kiss one. took Rush out they on their them. full yep. first uh, American tour in about 1975. Now, if there's a Rush nerd out there listening, he'll probably nail me to the cross on the details of that particular tour. But it is true that Kiss drew Rush out. Wait, wasn't I think Kiss, to their credit, heralded young bands. Over and over again, they were uh, instrumental in helping people. Knowing Gene Simmons, he probably took a cut from well, some of them. You know, the, the I think legend, that they helped many, many bands. They did, but the legendary story is that that Gene wanted Eddie Van Halen to join Kiss. Who wouldn't? Because he, you know, supported yes. young people, and he saw Eddie Van Halen very early on before Van Halen broke, right. and was thinking about replacing Ace with Eddie. That and, wh- I mean. Would you, if you put Eddie Van Halen in any band back in that era, that but band the, becomes, Kiss doesn't need it's Eddie a different Van Halen. Band, yeah. yeah, Kiss doesn't need it. Uh, see, I'm not. You could have played in Kiss at that I period know, of time. I know. 1970. I am not. And there was a Kiss Army in high school. They were huge when I was in high school. And for some reason, I was not a huge Kiss. Fan. I was in the Kiss Army. My favorite Kiss song. What do you think my favorite Kiss song is? Uh, Shock me. Nope. Uh, Love gun. Nope. Strutter. Nope. Uh, Hotter than nope. hell. Uh, Heaven's on nope. fire. What is it? Beth. <laughs> not even close by far my favorite kiss song i don't think i play think it on that guitar it's a kiss song it is, i know it's barely it's uh because it's the it could one be a Barry it's Manilow the one song. ace freely's did he no peter uh, chris sang it peter chris sang it that's yes. right and peter chris wrote it but that's my and so i i was not a huge kiss guy same way i feel like they're in the bon jovi theme of like huge monumental bands that have like a couple of songs that are like rock anthems that that when they come on in a bar room goes, yeah, I'm living on a prayer. I'm going to rock and roll all day and party. Like, I think those are those bands that I don't, it's not what I strive for. So no. Beth to me is my favorite Kiss song. Hmm. 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 I just went down a notch in yeah, your head. You did. I know I did. Hmm. That's why I was, when I, when I got Rush as the band that you gave me, I was like, wait, oh, back up. I like Rush. I thought you were going to give me Uriah Heep. I, I didn't know you was liked Rush. Get anthrax I didn't know you were. Uh, I didn't know you. You Rush. liked Rush. I love Rush. Combining equal parts Genesis and Yes and Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin, Rush also released their self-titled debut album in 1984, which included their first rock radio hit, "Working Man," which was played uh, in in Cleveland first by DJ Donna Halper. 
the band followed their debut LP with Fly By Night in 1975 and Caress of Steel also in 1975. Don't know that one. What were you doing, Jamie Kaler, in 1975? So, 75, I was 11 years old, and it was I was in Hooksit, New Hampshire. Hooksit? Playing, Where, where's Hooksit, New Hampshire? It's just outside Hampshire of Manchester. So, you know how Boston has a chip on its shoulder about New York? Yes. Like, they're dicks. Yes. You're taught, when you grow up in Boston, you're taught to hate New York. And, of course, you end up going to New York, and you're like, you guys are idiots. This is the greatest city on earth. But as a little kid, you're like, fuck New York, fuck the Yankees and everything. And so Boston has a little city uh, called Manchester, New Hampshire, that has a chip on its shoulder about Boston. Where Manchester people are like, you know, we like Boston, but we're always like, fuck you, Boston, fuck you, Boston. And then Manchester has a little town next to it called Hooksit. So, so we, Hook th- Hooksit thinks it's Manchester, and Manchester Hooksit, thinks it's Boston. I got busted. And Boston thinks it's better than New York. I got busted to the big city of Manchester to go to high school because Hooksit didn't have a high school. Oh, okay. For like that's, a 40-minute drive on a bus every morning. Oh, no way. To go to high school, so where 19- I got bullied mercilessly. Because you were from Hooksit? Because I was a redhead and oh. from Hooksit. Did they have a, a, they was there a slur for uh, a, a name for kids from Hooksit? Yeah, yeah Kaler. Like Hookies? Kaler's. Okay. I don't know. No, there wasn't. <laughs> there wasn't. The guy, fucking Kaler's are back. So, and it was mostly, I think it was me because I had bright, I had strawberry blonde hair that was so unique. It wasn't like wow. fire engine redheaded right. the kid uh, from uh, a Christmas story who sticks it. It's not that red. Right. I, it was like you weren't a ginger on a woman. It was beautiful hair, right. like women. And so many women would see me as a little boy and be like, "Oh my god, I wish I had that hair." Not a great thing for a young man coming into puberty, who also late blooms. I be- I don't even shave till college. Wow. Like in high school, I'm the one kid. Like in freshman year, I'm. I got not, no mantle of pride yet. I'm in the showers, and back in those days, there was no private showers. There was one giant long stall, and some some Greek kid, two showers over, is already balding. Wait, wait, some Greek kid was well, this part okay. of the world? Uh, well, Manchester, a, a New Greek? Hampshire is uh, very. It was very Greek then. Like I played on the soccer team, and. The lead scorer was Demos Papadopoulos. Like, it was all Greek, 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 And, Greek. and what does that have to do with immigration? Was it a fishing village? <laughs> we, were, why? we were on the banks of the Merrimack River. So is that why? No, what, why do Greek they, immigrants well, come why, to that part of the world? Why are Somalians all over Minneapolis? They, what, well, one there's person all, there's goes usually there, industry. Right. And says, one oh, person this place gets is there amazing. and goes, please come. I need, I need some you know, support. And so then they take over. But, but Manchester, was a, it's a mill town. Uh, right. So it's on the banks of the Merrimack River. Paper so mill the, or There lumber? were paper mills, all mills. Like it was mill, mill, mill all the way up and down the river. Okay. And it's a, I mean, it was a great city, but it is a working class, you know, they, they punch first and ask questions later. It's a tough town and I'm not really a fighter whatsoever. And so I was this little, you know, I, I was a skinny kid and I was an athlete, but I got into big city and all these kids had grown up from kindergarten through high school all together. Right. And then a, a handful of us would come in from New Hampshire and I was, you know, I was, I was nervous and I was uncomfortable and, and uh, you know, some kid two grades up bullied the shit out of me until my mother finally went to the school and was like, this, what is this kid doing? What was that kid's name? I don't know. I still to this day don't know. And I, I dodged him. I dodged him. I think, I don't know where he is. I think years later, he, I, somebody told me he was working at some gas station. I don't know what his name is. I don't know. I, it, and also it wasn't, he wasn't in a class of mine. I think it was, it was like that iconic movie scene where at the end of the hall, just some dude goes, you, I've chosen you. Like it was like the red bullseye on a, on a uh, dartboard. 
or like my hair was the cape for the uh, the bullfighter. And that kid saw me and was like, I'm waiting to drop out and I'm going to fucking torment you <laughs> until they let me quit school. And so, you know, to this day, I still like, cause I wish I just, I wish I'd have just jumped up and started swinging on that kid, but I never did. It's funny we talk about it because I haven't really talked about it much lately, but I had to write this entire, they had like 20 questions and I answered all these things. And so part of that bullying story kind of came back to me recently when I was recounting all my time back there. I mean, that's just one random story. I actually really... And I talked about how much I loved growing up there. Yeah, but but you're not you're also not a meek guy. Like you're a dude. I know. Like, you, you're a guy who looks like you could throw down. So you know. Yeah. I see some humanity in you with uh, the idea. That I you have way too much empathy, and I didn't. I got only got into like. But one. you needed that. You needed to have that empathy because you could have been. I see. I would have assumed that you were kind of the dick in high school. I know. Do you know what I mean? I was. And I say that lovingly, but I, I mean, know. You know, you're a guy. No, you're I've a fucking off. guy. Well, we've always talked about that in the comedy world. When I play angry, it's not yeah, funny. No, but it's when not. I play frustrated, I am funny. Yeah, absolutely. Because otherwise I come off. Because you look like. I look y- like a, a prison guard in Auschwitz. You actually look like that. the guy who would scare people yes. who are in comedy crowds. And which is what I play in TV right. sometimes. But I'm right. really not. I, I'm not a fighter You're whatsoever. a good dude. Okay, so both Fly By Night and Caress of Steel were albums that featured Neil Peart lyrics and songs that were heavily influenced by his love of fantasy and science fiction. Dogs! Science, uh, like By Tour and the Snow Dog, The Necromancer. The Necromancer. I mean, imagine being in a band and having a song called The Necromancer. So because they had that sort of sci-fi, geeky, nerdy stuff, the record company didn't quite know what to do with Rush by the mid-70s, and they kind of left them for dead. But isn't that odd? Because Zeppelin... Zeppelin kind of had that mysticism to them. They did, but they started also with so many blues heavily influenced songs. That makes sense. And so many kind of love And rock these guys songs. were nerds from day one? They were nerds from day, yeah, and heavy nerds. Heavy and most, nerds. And, and most and of their records were heavy nerds. That was back when nerds were not taking over the earth. Well, it wasn't, yeah, and it wasn't cool now, to be a yeah, nerd. We were like, the people jocks. don't remember, it was not cool to be a nerd. It was not cool. Right. But Rush decided, they, they had a lot of pressure on them in 1976 to develop a hit. There was a lot of pressure on them from their record company to deliver an album that we can sell. Give us FM hits. And instead of focusing on writing an FM hit, they went into a studio and they recorded what would be their first seminal record, which is 2112. 2112, which is basically a rock opera. I've been a Rush fan for over 40 years, and I have no idea what 2112 is really about. It's about a guy who's fighting society. It's about a guy who's fighting this sort of authoritarian ruler class of people. Okay. The priests are the evil people. I am not a... No, this is nerd. I am not... I was. Here's the funny thing. I wasn't a nerd. I was an athlete. Like, I played all the sports in high school, so I didn't do Dungeons & Dragons. I was friends with... I was a chameleon. I was friends with everybody, so I, I was friends with all the drama geeks and the nerds and everything, and I kind of fit in everything, but I, I played sports, and I did not... 
I never read Lord of the Rings. I actually walked out of the movie and asked for my money back halfway Okay, so th- this album, 2112, is for people who read Lord of the Rings. Yes. And, and, and did role-playing on the weekends and went into the forest and did live D&D in the woods. Do you remember when people were doing live yeah. D&D? I, I mean, I, I've heard of it. I never did it. I don't even know how to play Dungeons & Dragons. I, see, I remember when I was around this age, 78, 79, hearing about live D&D games in Pittsburgh, because that's where I'm from, Pittsburgh, oh, I thought you Pennsylvania. Were, I thought you were in New Mexico. Well, there was divorce in the family in 1980. There was a parent uh, who was like, I'm going well, to punish listen, I just I had to relive my bullying days. You should relive some divorce so well, we're both no, on yeah, equal pain level. D- divorce got us to uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. But my childhood was Pittsburgh. And I remember, you know, and we had woods near our house. And I was there was part of me that was afraid of the woods because I thought that the high school kids were in the woods playing live D&D. Because I remember there was a story, there was a story in the in which, the, by the way, in the pa- would be absolutely terrifying. It should be that should be your next feature. You're right. Well, no, no. Listen, be, I remember that there was a story about a kid in Michigan getting stabbed with a real sword sure. and maybe dying because they were playing live D and D on acid in the woods outside of Ann Arbor. Sure, like college kids. Actually, I mean that sounds more fun than D and D not on acid. D and D not wait. If you were on acid, then you would be like, yeah, actually, D&D sounds fun. Oh, absolutely. Anything. I, but I, but I've also, never done but acid. Wasn't, have you done acid? I have done acid. Have you? Yes, but not not since before Jerry Garcia died. Oh, so it's I, a, I think I did it, I've honestly, never tried it four or five times. Never tried it. I actually had, when I was in college, uh, classes were nearly over my junior year, and my friends and I decided to take acid and walk around Chicago, because I went to Northwestern. Mm-hmm. And- we ended up walking down the middle of Lakeshore Drive. Of course you did. <laughs> during rush hour. Between the cars. No, down, there was a thin concrete median. I know exactly and what I have no about. idea how we ended up on the median. I just remember that there were rows of cars on both sides in, in a dead stop. Well, that's how we got across. But there we were. And we saw Baron von Munchausen that day, thinking that Baron von Munchausen would be a great movie to see on acid. It's and the it, worst it movie to ever see on acid. Because it's not even, a, you, it's one of those. You don't need to be on acid dude, to watch Baron Von Munch. Terry Gilliam, you're always like, oh, this is going to be fantastic. And then invariably you're like, oh, God, that was more work than it should have been. All of his movies feel that way. Like, I love Brazil. Right. But it um, seemed like one of those things that you're not, supposed to do if you're on acid. Watch. No. It's a hard watch. The other time that I did acid, I did meta- uh, acid when I saw Metallica I'm not play sure that's the a good Forum. In nineteen ninety one in Los Angeles. No, it wasn't. And what Metallica had before the show, they had these big screens up on the up on the wall. And they had a live video camera backstage. Mm-hmm. And basically they were all bunched together and staring at the camera and they all go, We're gonna come out in a couple minutes and kick your ass. And I thought they were talking to me and that they were literally going to come out and kick my ass. And I didn't understand why Metallica would want to kick my ass because I paid money to see them and I'm a fan. And you're a huge fan. Right. Seems like an odd choice for Hetfield to come start that swinging night, at me. That whole night, because I did acid at Metallica, I, I literally thought that they were also recruiting us to go to war. Mm-hmm. Like they had assembled all the stoners from Southern California in the Great Western Forum. And this is before the Great Western Forum. That's your next the, screenplay. Right? Where, where, I, I where they put an army they together. Gonna, well, they put an army together. They just didn't execute on the, like, we're going to go attack Culver City. <laughs> like, we're literally going to go and we're going to take over Santa Monica we're tonight. <laughs> just going to drive towards the airport, take a right, yeah. and just start destroying people. That's what I thought they wanted from us. It's like a giant game of Risk. All right. So 2112 okay. was a giant, giant, giant. See what I'm doing? I'm, I'm trying to keep. I'm. 
trying you're, to keep things moving. Hey, listen, you I'm stay on the tracks, brother. You're right. the train. We're talking about Rush. So 21-12 was a huge record for Rush. And basically what it gave them was the ability to do what they wanted because they finally had a hit and a successful record with the record company. And they followed up 2112 with two more similar science fiction fantasy themed albums, uh, Farewell to Kings and Hemispheres, both which cemented them as true arena rock gods. I really came into Rush late. Well, I think you came into Rush. I it bet moved, you remember hearing pictures. Closer to the Heart. Of course I did. I Honestly, one of my favorite songs. Limelight's probably my favorite. I love Closer to the Heart. Right. Tom Sawyer was in high school. Tom Sawyer was huge for us. Now this was a this was a, an important this was an important heart. FM hit for them because it, it helped huge. it helped keep them out on the road where they're really right. building an audience. Well, let me ask you: Didn't they weren't they road dogs for I mean fifty weeks a year? They, they were monsters. They averaged over two hundred concerts a year. And back then, what they would do right. is they would write the next record while they were on the road. Have you so done the road anything? Because I, I've seen people do that. I have a buddy of mine is a musician. He, he goes, "Oh, I'm writing on the road." I go, "When I'm on the road, I can't get anything done." I do the show that night doing stand-up or whatever, and then the next day is like I'm hungover and I'm watching a Law & Order marathon until the next show. Well, these guys didn't do party. That. These guys party, didn't guys. party. They That's went what's crazy. Back, right, so they went back into the... So while they're touring for Farewell to Kings, mm-hmm. which is this record, they're writing the next record, which is Hemispheres, which was actually a very sort of out-there, crazy music album for them. What's the big hit off Hemispheres? They don't really have a hit off Hemispheres. I Hemispheres, I feel like. What year is that? Uh, 1978. But where, okay. where they are now about to blow Jamie Kaler's mind How are is, you into Rush that young? Because Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is a Rush city. But, I mean, you were like 10 years old when Rush... Right, but it was in the air because I had, an, I had a friend... Isn't it crazy at that no, age I'll that tell Rush you was your no, jam? I'll tell you why. Because I had a, a best friend in, in grade school named Eddie Zaleski. And Eddie Zaleski had an older brother named Larry. And Larry Zaleski was into Rush. So you need that, as is many people have said before, you need that older dude figure in your life sure. to shepherd you into good stuff. Like I had a family friend, Keith Hoffman, my friends, my parents' best friends, the Hoffmans, their teenage son was into Van Halen. He was the one that introduced me to Van Halen right when that first record came out. Mm-hmm. And Larry Zaleski was into Rush. And because I wanted Larry Zaleski to think I was cool, when I would go over to the Zaleski house, we would listen to Rush. And that's where it all made sense to me. So I was already a fan of Rush by the time they release uh, Permanent Waves in 1980. And that's a huge record because that gives them some big FM hits, Spirit of the Radio. Free Will is on that record. Entree New, Natural Science. And that record really cements Rush as that FM staple because Spirit of the Radio. But the album that really- Back in those days, it was all about radio play. Absolutely. I mean, you see the Queen biopic lately and they're like, we want radio hits. Because, and that was what drove you. And nowadays it's so different because it's all about, you you can do whatever you want. But back in those days, you had to do three minute blast out and do these things. Not to sound like an old dude. We are old. We are old. Yeah. People don't realize like your only way to hear music back then was through your FM stations. And every city had two, maybe three FM rock Mm -hmm. radio stations. And then those AM stations that play the oldies, that was the only place to hear music. We had the Boston stations. We had uh, WAAF was the big one. No, we didn't even, there was no Manchester station. I don't remember. 
BCN was a big one. That but was from, and BC, that, BCN that turned Boston? a new wave. BCN was Boston for me. BCN is Boston. Yeah. So there was no FM ninety five point five Rocks Manchester, New Hampshire. It was. It was always in Worcester. Because that's where the big that's where the big concerts were. Was the Worcester Centrum the, mostly? What was the first to. show that you ever saw at the Worcester? Uh, uh, first show I ever saw was at the Boston Garden, and I saw Blue Oyster Cult. Nice with nice uh, Nazareth, uh, Pat Travers Band, nice and Fog Hat. Well, that's amazing because that's my first th- show those, ever. Those, those, that's that's who Rush face. was touring with. Shit face. That's the milieu yeah. that Rush was touring Pat with. Travis, boom, boom, out go the lights. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I'm ready to fight. I'm ready to fight. Snort and whiskey. And even Blue Oyster Cult. Like Drinking cocaine. <laughs> that's so good, dude. Snort and whiskey. Have you done that at karaoke? They don't have snorting whiskey and drinking cocaine. Oh, God damn it, they should. That's such a good... I got this feeling. Uh, when I was a kid, Drop I saw everybody. I saw everybody. Blue Oyster Cult in Worcester, Massachusetts. That's This was in Boston. That's no, this a, was oh, downtown, was, uh, Boston the Garden. Garden. Centrum is, uh, we would go Blue out. Blue Oyster Cult was able to sell out the Boston Garden? With, you know, I'm sure Pat Travers really helped the draw on that. <laughs> no, I don't know. But yeah, Blue Oyster Cult was, dude, Don't Feel the Reaper was No, I know they had a, I know I they had it was a, sold out. Because I'm telling you, I was 16. I was shit-faced. How did you get from, how, so how did so you get from. So we took a car. We drove um, down to the garden. It was an hour. It's an hour. What's funny is it's an hour. And now I drive an hour to go across town in Los well, Angeles, right? It, but when yeah. you're a kid, I don't know about you, we never went. My father was like, he goes, we're not going to Boston. Like, we never went to Fenway. <laughs> It was one hour drive. And so when I was a kid, I was like, oh my God, an hour drive? That's insane. Who could stay in a car that long? And my father just wouldn't drive anything. But then it got to a point. One time I went, I was in a seat. You know, here's how it worked. You had to get tickets to Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster was in Sears. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. So, I, and you didn't know when the tickets, they, do, they weren't like tickets go on sale Friday at noon. Tickets, all of a sudden, we're in Sears one time. I'm in, uh, gosh, where was how old was I? I was a senior in high school. And uh, all of a sudden, we're in Sears, and over the loudspeaker, they go, hey, Rolling Stones tickets just went on sale. Meaning they have a stack of tickets over the at the- Ticketmaster booth right, right. in the- Like, Ticketmaster yeah. was a booth in the back right. of a Sears. Yeah. And so we sprinted across, and I got two tickets. And the closest concert was Hartford, Connecticut, Jesus. from Manchester, New Hampshire. How, how much of a drive and, is by that? the way, How much was, of a drive is that? From, uh, it was like a four-hour drive. Wow. And it was, uh, it was the Rolling Stones Farewell Tour, 1982. Nice. They were never going to play again. This is it. That right. was their farewell. Yeah. Bye bye. And they they, they decided and they're coming to do that this again. summer don't to the you, Rose Bowl. And don't you think that back then in '82, I remember thinking, God, those guys are old. I can't <laughs> they believe so they're touring old. in 1982. And when they said, "This is our farewell," so literally we were like, 60 years done. ago, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, all the tickets, uh, basically every concert was at Tingley Coliseum on the state fairgrounds in Albuquerque, and tickets were sold in stacks at. Two places. The general, there was a place called the general store, which was a head shop. There were two of them. And then sound warehouse. And those, they would just get stacks that of was tickets. It. And they go, here's, yeah. So yeah. if that's so, your ticket, if you lose that's, it, you, that's it. You're gone. There, and there's, there was no computer. There was just stacks of tickets. So, and I say this is important because the first time that Brendan Smith sees Rush is 1981 on the moving pictures LP. Oh, that was right. That's my junior year. That was the that big was when tour. I discovered the moving pictures. Yeah. Well, that was a, that was their breakout record, moving that was pictures, the one. because it had the hits Tom Sawyer, it had Red Barchetta, it had YYZ, it had Limelight. It was such an important record because it really finally cemented Rush as FM arena rock 
gods. And they're never going to open up for anyone else again because of the strength of that record. That record is also important stylistically for Rush because it's the dawn of the 80s and they're starting to incorporate more synthesizers Mm -hmm. in their music because they are heavily influenced by other bands that they're listening to and they're unabashed in their praise for bands like Ultravox and The Police. I love, I love. So they follow up moving pictures with another important Rush record in 1982 or 1983, which is the Rush Signals record, which of course features this incredible Rush song. Almost a nod to their nerdy fans. Almost a nod to the outcasts that have adopted Rush as their band. Almost a nod to that kid who's being bullied because he's got odd colored hair. You know what's funny? I am like I came today when you said Rush. I go, oh, I'm a Rush fan, but I'm starting to realize I'm not a Rush fan. I mean, I'm a Rush fan, but I honestly thought Moving Pictures was one of their earlier albums. No, I no, had no, no idea. It was like all of a sudden some kid goes, "Hey, have you ever heard of Frank Sinatra?" And you're like, you're like, uh, here's what's funny. I don't have this, and I go, "Oh my god, I totally forgot this song. I love this song. There's like five. All the songs you've played already are not on my eye." My iPod. It's not even well, an iPod. My iPod. You're right. I'm gonna go back and get all these now because I only have like two or three songs on there. I think right. I have Tom Sawyer. I have Limelight. I love this. This is Sound this is one of my favorite. This is also a big uh, MTV hit for oh, them. That's probably why because I'm. I remember watching the very first day when they played uh, "Video Killed the Radio Star." The Bubbles. Right. Yeah, we had it. We had MTV too. And it was too. on. Like the way I had Sports Center on in my 30s, just constantly on a loop. When I was a kid, we would come home and just click the TV on, and MTV would come on, and then we would just whatever See, we're doing. See, this is why MTV I like on. you because my brother Ryan Smith, if he was here, he would tell you that MTV ran in our house like the radio, and our mom we worked. Did too. We did Remember, too. we're past divorce, yep. so it's only mom. Mom is working, so we ran the house. Yep. We were Lashkey kids. MTV ran in our house like the radio. And we would just be in our rooms doing other stuff. But if we heard a song that we liked, yep. like Subdivisions, we would run back in the living room, me, Ryan, and Liam, and we would watch that stuff. I feel guilty now that I'm not a bigger fan of Rush because I'm like, oh, God. Well, yes, hopefully, you know, we're, we're still going to get into a little bit of Rush because, yeah. you know, th- this is a, the, the 80s were a weird time it for Rush. It was great. Do you, sometimes I look at kids, like my daughter, I do this as a bit. My daughter's, she's, my daughter's four. Look, we're 50 years apart in age. Wait, you know Han- Hannah, Hannah? Claire's four. Claire's four. We're 50 years apart in age. And I always, I, I always talk about, I don't remember the old Kaji who says it's better back then, but it's, it was great. It was better back then. It was better. It was better back then. And I, the joke is- Do I you go, think that's uh, us getting old though? Do you think there's a I point where- I don't think so. I, I've talked about this and I think that the era, you can't do anything. Did you just see the guy from the San Francisco Giants had a little altercation with his wife and he went to pull the phone out and they got into a tussle and she no. fell to the ground and they kind of, no. you cannot do anything in public anymore. You'll be, it's on the news. Oh, it'll be on your YouTube. Yeah. It's gone. Yeah, absolutely. There's no privacy. Right. Like when in high school, we disappeared, man. My yeah. mother would ring a bell in the neighborhood, come home and stuff. And I think kids today don't have that because I do a joke about like, I grew up without if a cell phone. If you do something dumb, it'll be recorded on the That's spot. It. And you're, and you're fucked. Right. You fuck. Yeah, you're right. When I grew up, if you went to a concert and you lost your friends, you made new friends. Right. That's how that show went. Right. Because you had social skills and you could talk to people and maintain eye contact. 
And nowadays, like kids, they lose their phone. They don't know any phone numbers. They can't find directions anywhere. They don't know how to locate the nearest gluten-free muffin shop with a five-star review. They go homeless. Right. Like you're so locked in right. that there's no ingenuity. Right. There's no, there's no knowledge because you just go, well, I'll just, it, it's, my brain's in the palm of my hand at this point. Right. It's not, you, there's no thought process anymore. I mean, right. they're, they're taking it into new directions and doing insane things. But well, at it's some a heavy point, anchor. No, I mean, it's a heavy anchor. I agree. And when you, when you forget your phone and you leave the house, it's crazy. you're like, what, how am I going to survive? Wait, wait, I need to get back and yeah. like, holy shit. Yeah. We did all of that without this. All of it. Only- and listen, yeah. Did we get trapped places for two or three hours? And, and we, we had to like knock on people's doors and go, can I use your phone? Cause I have to call my family. Cause I'm, I, I'm, I'm not there. Pay phones. Pay phones. There were pay phones, but there's no pay phones anymore. When we, t- when we went to concerts at Tingley Coliseum, my brother and I would take the city bus mm-hmm. or maybe hitch a ride with some kid who was able to drive. This is before we were able to drive. Yeah. We would take the city bus to the concert. Actually, Ryan Smith and I saw the Signals tour, the Rush Signals tour together. Mm-hmm. And then after the show, we would go to the McDonald's near the state fairgrounds and call our mom from the payphone. Yeah. Come get us. You and always, she would come get and us. And you always had a place, like if somebody went, if you moved around, you'd go, all right, listen, the big clock right under <laughs> it, right? There was a place where there was a meeting place. And if we knew if we got lost, go to there and we'll meet there. Okay. Here's the most important thing about meeting somewhere. The time. If I said to you, Jamie, we're going to meet at 10 o'clock at the big clock, mm-hmm. you would be there at 10 yeah. o'clock. Now, when they, people they make plans, they text and go, oh, sorry, I'm going to be 45 minutes yeah. late. Or let's meet somewhere else. It's like, no, we're meeting at the big clock. I'm not driving across the town because you changed your mind. That's the thing. People are changing their minds people with this shit. People text too. Like all of a sudden it comes to 10 o'clock and they're not here. And they go, oh, you get this text that says, I'm parking. I don't give a fuck. Just walk down. <laughs> You're obviously five minutes away. No, I just wanted to let you know I'm parking. Yeah, I got it, dude. You're parking. You're fucking late. <laughs> they weren't you weren't late back then <laughs> you weren't. because it was life and death well here's the other thing i and it's in some way there was more of an edge there was a little danger not that you were ever in peril but there was a there was a danger there was an air of like this is such a co- i'm holding my phone up this is such a cop-out that you can do any it, it all works yeah. it all fits together as long as you have a charge but then you were like you really had to put plans together and, but you would improvise. And if something went awry, you were like, well, I'm now with these people. And all of a sudden you would have like this magical adventure that would have never happened had you texted us like, where are you? Oh, I'm in seat 17, section five. But you're like, all of a sudden you're off on your own doing these amazing things that are maybe dangerous. But I think in our lives, that's some of the craziest, most beautiful stories we ever had we were like dude i was at this crazy place something happened i met this person and off we went and this crazy adventure happened that doesn't happen anymore no unless you're on tinder the other thing that is happening with texts that i know specifically is people are losing their minds interpreting texts in the wrong way there's no context as as a guy who speaks for a living it drives me nuts i have to put a little icon that says "I'm, i'm kidding it also drives people crazy because they will they people tend to especially if you're dating someone interpret a text negatively always because it's so now them. all of a sudden you're yeah. in a resentment or yeah. a fight with someone because yeah. you think that they you read their text wrong because there's no you read it through nuance. your own filter right not theirs right I talk about this all the time in my act. You know, like in, when in Seinfeld, he goes, it's not me, it's you. That was the old, when you broke up with somebody, it's not you, it's me. It's me. It's not you. Right. To let them off the hook easily. Right. But in reality, in everything in life, it's not you. 
it's it's not them. It's you. It's right. your right. your issues in your head are what cloud your path through this journey. And so when people read texts and yeah. they want to see something bad, they read it bad. They read it badly. And then absolutely, it, where he's like, uh, "See you soon. See you soon." What does he mean, soon? I mean, oh, I mean, soon. We were supposed to meet today. To see, I mean, soon to me means three weeks. Is he not going to see me for three yeah. weeks? I thought for sure we. Were, I felt like you had a great time last night. <laughs> I mean, I blew the guy, and I felt like it was working. To, and now soon. Wait, you blew see the guy. You soon. He didn't. What? What happened? So, uh, moving pictures, subdivisions, signals. There's a lot of synthesizer on mm-hmm. these records, and the the mid to late '80s Rush albums featured more. They got heavy synth, very heavy synth on the next uh, couple of records. Grace Under Pressure. Power Windows and the late '80s record "Hold Your Fire" in 1987. Jesus Christ, how many albums? It's pretty prolific. I'm telling you, all they did was tour. Go, we win. All they did was tour and record. That's what you had to do back then: tour, record, when's the next album? Record one a year. One a year. You had to do it just to stay constant. But they did that. But Rush got a little bit off the rails with the synthesizer thing. They also in uh, 1987. They also featured their really only. They had a big hit with a song called "Time Stands Still," and it's really the only Rush record that features another performer because they always did stuff within the band. They never had guests. They never had mm-hmm. you know collaborations. They didn't do Queen, David Bowie. They didn't do uh, Michael Jackson, Paul McCartney. They didn't. They do, were Rush. They were Rush. That they all stayed in. But in 1987, with, with "Time Stands Still," Amy Mann. Singer-songwriter uh, Amy Mann. My friend in real life, Amy Mann. You know, I love her. And she doesn't know who I am, but in 87, I... Is she from Boston, or was that just a big... She went to... Uh, that was it. She went to... Because uh, Till Tuesday Berkeley. came... Till Tuesday came up in Boston, didn't it? Right. So she, I Amy... Love Amy went to Berkeley. That's why. I, and I knew she was from Boston. Yeah, and Steve Vai was there, so she was very much a part yeah. of that thing. And Till Tuesday... Uh, I think that, that was that the band video that she was formed huge. when she well, stands up scary. with the wedding gown, the wedding veil on. Right. Hush, hush. So Rush is fa- they're fans with her, and so when they come time to do this, this song, their single from Time Stands Still. Here we go. You're gonna hear a little Amy Mann. I did not know that was her. Yeah, and Ready? I'm a huge fan of hers. How good is that? She's such a great. The voice, voice of an angel. Here we go. Hold on. The video. Now I got to go download that one. I love to tease her because the video is so great because it, it uses that like late 80s, uh, you know, where you could take an image and make it move all around the. the so, like, Rush is in a studio and, you know, they're flying all over the space, you know, uh, playing their instruments. And Amy is there just mounting a camera. Like, she's a studio camera person. I do remember that video. Right. That's time yeah, I still. do. That's she's Amy. the only thing I like in Magnolia. <laughs> Did you know that? <laughs> you. The tourniquet or something? Well, she 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 got she was song. nominated for an Oscar for that, uh, for Magnolia. For Is that one. right? For one. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, she's the bad. Yeah, I love her. Yeah, she was Every time I go to a party at your house and I see her, I'm, I get starstruck. Isn't that weird? Amy Mann, I kind of go like, I, I loved Amy Mann. She's legit. And I never talked to her once at your parties, ever. Oh, really? I've never shouted with her. I know you guys are best friends, and I'm always like, because hey, part of my youth, it's such a weird thing. Because I'm from New Hampshire and from Boston, and all of a sudden you come out here in your same room with people that you kind of like. Oh my, oh, I, I like it. Well, it's the, it's the fun part of LA. It is. It is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you walk into a bar, and you're like, I feel like that's. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, yeah. I, and then uh, you work with her. Like I did Will and Grace, and I had to do a scene with Gene Wilder. 
You did? Did you not? Yeah, Gene no. Wilder. Oh, my, one of my first things I did, and I was, uh, you know, this kid. I just got out of the Navy. I was a couple years acting, and all of a sudden, I'm in a scene with Gene Wilder on Will and Grace. He plays my boss, and he fires me, and the whole scene's with him. For the first two days of rehearsals, I can't do the scene because I'm sitting here a 16 inches away from Gene Wilder trying to do a scene and he says his line to me and the whole time in the back of my head I'm like that's fucking Gene Wilder dude <laughs> I'm like melting down and I really had to sit in my dressing room and I was shaking and I was like dude you you got the job you gotta you have to they're gonna fucking fire you if you don't pull it together so over the five days of rehearsal the whole week I was like that's fucking Gene Wilder man and finally I was like I just you know grinned and bared it and I got down there and tried my best and I tried to go fuck Gene Wilder what does he know I get you know you have to like convince yourself and then I, it goes great but the whole week I was like that's fucking Gene Wilder, man. Did he recognize the the nervousness in Jamie Kaler? I don't know if he did. He was he was the nicest. He's most, got he's a pro, he such a pro. He was the most gentle person. He was always the first man on set. He sat there. I learned a lot watching him because he had one bit, and I'm such a comedy file. And I was, you know, it's Gene fucking Wilder, man. It's Willy Wonka the whole time. All the yeah. Richard Pryor movies have already been done. I'm like. Uh, Gilda had passed, so he and he, he was a little sick, and he was really gentle. But he had one bit where he had to, uh, Will gives him a card, and he has to tear it. And so he went to props really gently. He was like, hey, could I get a bunch of cards from you, please? And so they brought him a stack of cards, and I watched. And I don't think he knew I was watching or anybody. He was in the corner, and he practiced tearing the cards in different ways wow. to see which wow. tear was the funniest. So the first one, he tears it straight in half. The next one he picks up, he tears it tears it tears it tears it and he tried like maybe six or seven different ways of tearing the card and then if you ever see the episode he tears it in the funniest fucking way you could tear a card i think he tears it really slow 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 and wow. then goes what you and you're like god damn Wait, it did he do that what you he was a technician of like but when he does things, well, it he's looks, a master. He was a master. He's a master. And it looks. It's like when you watch. Like another one I did was Jeff Goldblum play my boss, and another one Lily Tomlin what? was my boss. So I watched. What did Jeff Goldblum play your boss? He on? plays every. I I worked in Will's law firm. I recurred on Will and Grace, and so each time, you know, they stunt cast every time. So every episode, I'd show up, and one time my boss is, and I'm doing scenes with Gene Wilder, Jeff Goldblum, Lily Tomlin. So I'm getting like a comedy class from these masters, and um, Gene. He just was so meticulous. And then when you watched it, it was utterly thrown away, except it was exactly the way he had rehearsed it. So you're like, you know when you see someone, you go, he's just winging it. He's not. No. Now, did you take that away as, a, as an acting lesson? Like, Of course. That, here's the craft. Here's the craft. Right. You practice got it, it, practice it, right. practice it. And once it's ingrained in everything, you throw it away. See, that's it's almost like an athlete. It's almost like Tom Brady practicing in the rain or yeah. Peyton Manning practicing yeah. with a bucket of yeah. water and, you know, just to get the... It is about the work. It's and about sometimes the work. you get here, and I'm an improviser, as are you. And so we sit there and we think... And I wing it. And I've... Here's the other thing. I've succeeded so much through my life by winging it. Right. You know, maybe right. never, maybe not an A plus all the time, but I'm in the B category for yeah. improv and just winging it and right. not caring. And but when you see the people who are true masters, it's they put not the work improvised they whatsoever. Put, they put the work in. On the on the other episode, Jeff Goldblum is in the next dressing room next to me, and uh, the, he has a woman there who's his assistant. Right. And so they all of a sudden, I'm kind of prepping for the shoot. We're in the morning of the shoot, and I hear them just screaming at each other. This insane screaming match. 
And uh, I go, I talk to her after. I was like, hey, is everything okay? And she goes, what do you mean? And she was, it was his acting exercise warm up. They had taken the lines oh, and they, so they were, were had, they weren't even running lines. They were doing like they, a. Well, you know, he's an acting teacher, Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum has taught classes for many, many, many years. That. He was a huge also teacher. from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Pittsburgh guy, yeah. Jeff Goldblum, yeah. And honestly, you you see his cadence when you talk to him naturally, and he's he's Jeff Goldblum always. Right. But when you see him, he's got that effortlessly style where it's like that dude's just talking on camera. He's not. He's such a fucking actor where it's so perfected of what he's doing that again, you're watching these people and you go, you think they're throwing it away? They're not. They're not. No, they made a choice. They it's made about, a it's, it's, it's and actually, they do it the same way every time. It's actually about doing the work until you get to the choice and then making that choice yeah. and executing it with confidence. And they're being that. And so they are in that role, playing that person, saying those lines without even thinking about it. Yeah, it's, it's, it was magnificent to watch each and And Lily Tom was the same way. It was crazy. So yeah. Another, uh, that those was are a, masters. That you, was a heavy side. Wilder, track. Goldblum, and Lily, Lily Tom, Tomlin. Those are American masters. And plus the four main cast were... That might have been one of the greatest foursomes. That's up there with like Lucy, Ricky, Ethel, yeah. and Fred. Where the four of them, man, you would when on shoot day they would shoot the scene like laser sharp. Where you're like, holy shit, those people are locked in. They would shoot it once. They'd come to the side. They'd take ten minutes. All the writers would rewrite the entire scene, the whole scene. Wow. And we're live in front of a studio audience. And is Jim Burrows directing this? And Jim Burrows is directing yeah, so it. Forget it. And so I learned so much. Why? Right. And then they would come back. Not, not miss a beat. All the ex- all the right new lines, and so it was for me, even for me. They were like, "Here's your new line." Here's your. New line. I was like, "Oh shit!" Trying to pull this all together. Right. And then they would go in, and it was just effortless. Where it was, ma- you could tell, and that's why the show had such great ratings. It's magic. That's it's how you make. That's how you make a hit show. In the same way, the chemistry was. I felt on my boys. Yeah. Where you, I mean, Tracy Lillianfield. I I never thought I got enough credit with Betsy and Jamie for casting that group of people because we're all still best friends well, and they could see it. Yeah, and and that's that. Well, that was the success of the show. You yeah. cannot fake that chemistry. I no. mean, it's such a huge deal. Like people don't even think, like, it's not about like who's the best actor who comes in and does things. It's, it's so much about chemistry and that's where the casting people, as you just yeah. said, that's where they really make their money. What's well, even like in Understanding the like uh, a, chemistry. A Star is Born. I mean, they saw it on the Oscars. I, did you see Star is Born? You hated it. I, I didn't buy the chemistry. You didn't? Um, oh, I totally did. I loved yeah, it. I thought it was didn't. fantastic. Yeah. But I, you were also a little more cynical than I am. I'm very cynical. We're on a guy. nuclear rail of stuff I've heard, so I don't want to go down a See, certain rabbit you, hole. You have- I, you, I had intel. Okay. I have intel- that hey God bless I have everybody. Now heard some intel. Whatever you want to do in your personal life, I don't. It's so great. <laughs> We're going to talk but after the show. I, I there was yeah oh great yeah. So for they people love who each are other listening to this, whatever. You should I'll reach just say out. this. I'll you just should say do this. an after show brief with insider fans. I, I will say this. So Bradley that. Cooper and Lady Gaga love each other. They've created a, a, a modern masterpiece with each other. <laughs> there is. <laughs> They will not be dating anytime soon. Let me just Cooper. put it that way. Okay, Rush, can, <laughs> Rush, Rush continued to record you and tour. Bradley Cooper. Rush continued to tour and record until life sort of forced them to take a break. In the late 90s and in the span of less than 12 months, Neil Peart lost his daughter to a car accident that. and his wife to cancer. And as part of his healing process, Peart had to take a timeout from the band. They sort of were forced into retirement. And he went on a motorcycle ride that took him from Canada to Alaska and down to Belize. I knew that. 55,000 miles yeah. 
on a motorcycle to heal the pain that he went through. I mean, can you, I don't even want to ask you this question because you have a lovely wife I would, and you, two magical daughters. I've talked about it before because, I mean, I, yeah. And you know what's funny is I've talked about this is that I'm an Irish Catholic repressed guy who I only know love through a firm handshake is how I always describe it. Because that's my father. We never hugged. And so I have all this pent up thing. But these two little girls have lit a spark in my life and now I cry at Lowe's commercials. Like I can't. <laughs> I can't fucking hold it together where it's like, Hannah loves the pain in their cell. It's like a Labor Day paint cell. So yeah. I would be, I mean, I've talked about it because, you know, I see the Newtown stuff and I see all these parents and somebody calls them crisis actors and I want to fucking kill every single one of them right. because I, I don't want to get political, but I, as a parent, the loss of a child is, I mean, I'm gonna, I might cry just talking about it. Right. Like it would fuck you. I wouldn't survive. Right. So they they had to take a time out. Until yeah, I get it. Neil, like, how could you be on the road? Because I, the other thing is, I, you know, they're not party monsters, but the road is a grind, man. Like, I'm, I don't love the road. I, I'll do stand up, and I, I don't like it. I like being home. I like some people love it, and that's they live on the road in what's, hotels. What's your what's your craziest road story? <sighs> I mean, what's your darkest how, road story? You want the darkest road story? I, I want that moment where you're like, oh, I guess oh, my wife's I, never I, gonna I, hear this. No, probably not. Um. But, you know, we could be on the road. We'd be fucked up and picking up women. And I was in some city, and we were in a hotel. And uh, they, we were partying after, and, and some girl was in my room. And we're all fucked up, and other people in another room. And so she she ends up in my room. It's blurry. It's hazy. It's messy. And I wake up in the morning, and she she's not this there. This is just a fan. Or someone some you met, met. Someone you hooked up I with. I met, yeah, at the show. Mm-hmm. After the show. This at Teehees in, in Youngstown? Where were you? <laughs> I was in Boston. I was in okay. the Comedy Connection at Faneuil Hall. <laughs> She's probably going to go, God, if, damn, if she hears the story. And so she, I wake up, I'm fucking hung over, like just, and I, I wasn't, a, I'm not a drug guy by any measure, but I make up for it by the amount of alcohol I would drink at the time and right. just fucking wrecked. And uh, I, can't, she's, I can't find her. She's not in the room, but all of her clothes are next to the bed, her purse, her phone, everything is there next to the bed. And I'm like, what the fuck is... So for one brief instant, I'm like, she, she's dead somewhere in this hotel room. I don't know what's happening. I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck is going on here, man? I'm hazy. And, and, and you killed her? Yeah, and, I, I and don't you know. may or may not have killed her? I mean, her? I was like, you know, you start to wake up. Yeah. I'm a blackout drunk, and you're like, fuck. And so I'm looking around the whole hotel room, like, well, where is this? I can't find her. And so um, I don't know what to do. Her phone, everything, her shoes, everything she was wearing the night before is there and uh here's how it happens the feature the other comic is down the road down the hall with her friend in that room and apparently she had wrapped herself in a sheet gone out of gone out of my room gone to find the other room and she was wrecked too and she couldn't find her way back and then uh had to go down to the lobby in a bed sheet. Nothing but a bed sheet and call her boyfriend to come pick her up. Oh, there was a dude. I guess. I don't know. I didn't hear it until the next day. <laughs> but here's what happened. So I, so I called some people on her phone. I ended up getting all of her stuff back to her. But I, I mean, for a second, I was like, what the fuck is happening? So wait, when you pick up the phone, you did you like literally scroll through? Like, who were some of the final numbers that I she called? I think somebody called eventually and oh my I answered God. it and was like... Here you go. Do you remember her name? Did you remember her no, name in, no in the moment? No idea. And this was many, many, many years sure. ago. Yeah, yeah. Faneuil Hall had a comedy club? A comedy connection. 
How, yeah. Is the comedy is, connection I, 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 still? Should people tell stories this dark? This is real life. Yeah, right? no, no, no. But no, but hey, that's. But I think most people would think that that's what life on the road as a comic is all about. I wasn't good with the. I'm just gonna have a beer after the show and then go back to my room. Right. Like for me, the juice was the party after, and where people were. And I don't. I don't think I'm alone in that business. I mean, you. I read the dirt. Right. And I wasn't on any measure with Motley Crue, but, you know, you would go to a town and just tear the shit out of it in your own little world because all of a sudden 300, and if you destroy, you're up there for an hour. You know right. what it is. You're an yeah. hour and you're juiced and you're, you're the adrenaline surging and you finish the show and people are like, ah, and you go to the bar with them and you're getting loaded and girls are hanging all over you. And like, I don't know how, that. this is why I think we keep seeing rock stars are dying. The, well, dude, the, the drummer from The Cure just died, yeah. Petty, and all of a sudden you go, oh, what was he, 85? No, he was 64. Well, you know why? Is the damage you do on the road yeah. to your system, I and think especially so with the drugs, because they take, Sleep. they take the, like the Johnny Cash story is, is the perfect example of it. When you're constantly touring, Mm. And you're driving around the country in a car. Yeah. He learned early on from Elvis to take pills. You had to. You couldn't because survive. Because you're so exhausted yep. after a show, but you have to drive 300 yep. miles to the next place. And then yep. the next day you're wrecked, so you take the pills. And, and even now if you're, you're the on, Stones and you're on a Learjet. I don't care. You're going to Bolivia. You're well, getting also, on the next plane. The, the, the energy you feel yep. from a live public performance. You, you've been there. With, yeah, with laughter. Shaking. Or energy yeah. coming through you. When you come down, the the only thing that's going to get you back up because your brain wants yeah. to get back up is cocaine, is pills, it's all that. So and that's so it's what a they cycle. You, you know, I'm sure those guys were like, after a week of just beating themselves up on the road, they go, uh, you know what, I'm going to clean up on the road this time. And, you, you know, all of a sudden one night you have, and so you're hung over the next day and the only way to get through that next show is to continue the cycle. You're a little hung over. So after the show, you're like, well, I'll have a few drinks to knock the buzz off. Well, of that. that's, the, and all of that's a sudden, the cycle. Four months have gone by. Right. And you're like, I just right. took three years off of my life. Right. You're in a hamster wheel. And that's why they're all dying now. I they, agree. They and so their some people are amazing at it. So when you tell me that well, Rush, Rush did not. So but they, this is but not they to bring did it back until he passed because they wrote albums on the road. Right. I couldn't even write a joke right. on the road. But they but they but at least they didn't have the drug element that was also tearing them down. That's what I mean. So they took a they took a four sabbatical because of this, but they returned to the studio in two thousand and one, and in two thousand and two they released Vapor Trails, and have basically recorded and toured constantly since then until the R forty tour. And now here's where it's all going to wrap up into a nice little burrito of rock and comedy because forty years on the road did take its toll on Rush physically. They, their last show. How could it not? Well, their last, and, and the person that it took the most toll on was Neil Peart. Rush is now in retirement because Neil Peart was in such pain from basically five decades of insane drumming. That's what I was going to say. Like his, his drumming is a, I mean, that's. It's arguably the greatest. Well, he's always mentioned in the pantheon uh, of drummers. Yeah. John Bonham, uh, Neil Peart, Stuart uh, Copeland Charlie from the Rich. police. Right. He, but it took a toll, that physical drumming. So he was in constant, constant pain on the final R40 tour, yeah. uh, R40, uh, tour, which was supposed to just be a celebratory 40-year anniversary tour. And their final show was June 25th. Um, no, not June 25th. When was their final show? August 1st, 2015 at the Forum. They're, Brendan Smith and, and Ryan Smith. Anymore. No, they are, they are in retirement now because 
Neil can't, he can't do it. The fans hope, the, what the fans hope for is that Rush will eventually get back and do two shows in Toronto, two shows in New York, two shows in which Los Angeles, something, which maybe. But for right now, they have no plans to tour or record again. Now, just a, a couple other fun little Rush facts. Uh, June 25th, 2010, they received a star on Hollywood Walk of Fame, uh, which is located, their star is actually located right by the Musicians Institute. Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins gave the uh, induction speech. Brandon Smith and Ryan Smith were there too. Do you have a <laughs> star on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or on the Hollywood Walk of Fame? Do I? Do you? I do not. Was that ever a dream in your head? Never. There's a lot of names out there that we don't know about. Like when you pass, There's you're like, jillion, Mark Buman. I talk about, um, I just never wanted to, I don't know, man. For me, Im, like people want to be immortal, right? But if you look back, kids today, they don't even, they don't know who John Wayne is. I guess he's got some. No, they coming. don't. They don't. When, they don't know when who Peter Humphrey Tork, Bogart no, was. When Peter Tork of the gone. monkeys died, people were like, monkeys, why, yeah. why are you guys so sad? My joke says that if, unless you're a beetle, a president, or a serial killer, no one's going to remember you in three generations. That's, that's the end of it. Wow. Like, and if I, if you know, and people go in the, I tell that in the audience and here's the, no, it's not sad because here's why it frees you up to not have to oh, go. So you don't have that pressure of like, oh, I need to I, be this I, oh level. Oh my God, I got to get all this stuff done. Dude, you're here for a short journey. Try right. to enjoy it with as much joy and as little pain as humanly possible. I like that. And stop trying to accomplish the world. At some point, like I see like Zuckerberg, you're like, you won. Right. It's over. Right. Cash your chips in and just go enjoy your life. Well, see, you and I would do that. If you and I hit that That's why sort we also thing, are not Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> right. <laughs> but people drive themselves to a point where they don't. But then they look That's, back and they go, that, that my is, family hates me. I, um, I didn't grow up with my kids. <laughs> But I never wanted that. No, it, that's the I truth. I never cared enough. You, you know have, what? I, I right, like to neither, have fun with my neither friends. Neither did I. No, I didn't either. Neither did I. You know what I wanted to do? When I finished the Navy and I moved here, I didn't move to become an actor until I was 30. Right. And people were like, you're insane. My father was like, you're never, what are you doing? My father wanted me to stay in the Navy. He was like, just go get a job, job. And I got some, I'm going to do this. All I ever wanted, I wanted to be Ted Danson. Ted Danson to me, winner. Oh. The best career. National treasure. He is a national treasure. Institution. Witty, charming guy. Never seems to... Bill Murray in the film version is probably that, that career where you're like, it'd be great to just work. I wanted to go... I love performing live, but I don't want to be on the road. I have friends now who have kids and they were road comics and maybe a couple TV credits here and there, but now they're, you know, 50s and 60s. They're doing 40 to 50 weeks a year. Uh, Tuesday through Monday you know them you yeah. know these guys and yeah. that's how they earn their nut right. and so they say goodbye to their kids on Wednesday I don't want to do that I want to grow up with my kids I want to make enough money so I can take care of them and they can be happy but I've never cared about being a jillionaire and being owning a, a seven million dollar well, house I don't need a, a seven million dollar house in the hills I don't give a shit it's I, about being a king I don't want to be a king right neither do I I just want I want enough to be happy, right. but I want to spend time with my kids now. And, you know, talking about the road and stuff, now my life is so different. I actually enjoy the road a little bit to go out, but I only want to go pop out just to work. And so I'm not, people now, like, they think I'm going to go party after, and I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm going back to my hotel room. I'm not, it's not who I am anymore. I was a younger guy. And right. so unless you can change, the, the story ends horribly. You know what I mean? I like, do. Yeah. It's about the, the joy of family and hanging out more so. As long as you have enough money to have a happy life, I don't need to be the king of the hill. I don't give a shit. 
I like that. That's very poignant. Thanks, man. But I think that's a good place to get to. I mean, not to like take your inventory, but I, I, that's an admirable place to get to. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I mean, just, I, I just I got there a, because I'm like, you got to accept what you got. That's well, you basically know this, the this motivational line. speakers. I have yeah. done a show called the unmotivational speech, yeah. right? I go motivation to me is like, you know, I, listen, I wish I had written the Godfather. Right. Great book. I wish I'd made the movie, the Godfather. Fantastic book. I wish I had acted in the Godfather. Would have been a great role. You know what's sometimes just great? Just sitting back on a fucking Sunday afternoon and watching The Godfather. Yeah. Way easier. Way more enjoyable. Right. You don't have to. You know, Henry Ford's dead. I know he did a lot of shit. I know Ben Franklin fucking did a lot. They're gone. I'm sorry. It's, they right. want to be immortal, but you're gone. You're not going to remember it. What's well, that thing about needing to be immortal and having your name I on don't a building? It. Right. Rush didn't either. But that still but got them in the uh, Rock and Roll I Hall think of Fame. They in 2000. will be immortal. Well, they got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2013. I know that. I watched that. Which was a very big deal. To date, they've released 19 studio albums. Not wanting to be kings, 19 studio albums. I'm gonna guess how many they, let me guess how many they've sold. Okay, yeah. Well, because I have that figure exactly right here. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say 80 million. Not, no, actually, uh, by industry standards, Rush have sold over 40 million records okay. worldwide. But that's still an incredible feat for it's a band feat. that didn't have really any true major radio right. play and never had the support from the industry, never had the support from music critics. They did it all with their nerdy fans. And that's back in albums. So nowadays, I'm sure after, I mean, the downloads have got to be a bajillion. Well, all the downloads yes. And the cool thing song. about Rush now is we said, I think we said before that a lot of people our age are incorporating Rush into stuff like their appearance on the Colbert show their appearance on right. south on uh, south park their appearance uh and uh i love you man right. like people rush is cool it took 40 cool. plus years but they are finally well here's what's amazing about cool. them and i think it's because it's it's really easy to hit for a, a few years like when you said that 87 thing with uh amy man. amy man music had changed and all of a sudden they were they could have easily been left behind it's the same way the rolling stones have had an incredible career for that long because all of a sudden, 87 was a new wave had right. taken over. And we're almost at Nirvana, too. And, and almost at Nirvana. So and they, they survived still survived, they survived all of that, that, where people were like, no. So it just shows you that their music is timeless in a way. And the, as ja the great Jack Black once said, that's the true test, the test of time. The other thing that's interesting about Rush, to not to wrap this up, but we're, we're rounding home. We're actually almost home. I'm sliding into home base and I'm going to just list a bunch of uh, bands that have listed Rush as their influence. And those bands include the Chili Peppers, Anthrax, the Foo Fighters, the Smashing Pumpkins, Jane's Addiction, Metallica, Queensryche, and even the Pixies. Jamie Kaler, did we learn anything today? Did you learned, learn anything? Well, I, I have to today? go home and download some uh, Rush. Yeah, I, you know what? Actually, it's funny too because hearing this, something about music, as we both know, uh, brings us back to a certain time so it was beautiful to hear each one of those songs because this song to me is high school right and so i mean music sparks memories in a way and so i'm, I'm a huge music guy and so to go back and, and kind of go oh yeah honest honestly brings me back through my own journey and uh not to label the band that he went to see last night but to go <laughs> <laughs> to go to go rush yeah to go it, it's funny when somebody has a 40-year lifespan like I always say, U2 is the soundtrack of my life because yeah. every album with them, 
I can tell you exactly where I was, what I did, and the same way you probably feel about Rush. I have that with Rush. They're my and god so band. If, if we did the biopic, Brendan Smith... They're on the soundtrack. They might be a good hunk of the soundtrack. Well, the Brendan character is wearing nothing but Rush t-shirts. Yeah. Because at one point, I had over 40. I know you did. And you still, we used to laugh. You'd come on set, and I'd go, oh, it's a Rush day today. <laughs> That's all I ever wore was band shirts, which we love, because I love I love music so much. And when somebody else loves it that much, too, it, it helps you create bonds and friendships with people. And that's what the, I think that's what's cool about this show and the fact that each show will be a different band that people will find and then be able to see other people that love that band as well. Well, I am honored that you, my friend, have gone through this initial journey with me. Not journey. This, ori- this was, original, this not journey of the band. This, to get this, your podcast this rush out. journey. I'm honored that you're, you're sitting here. I'm also honored to have Richard Sheltinga. Just say hello, Richard. Hello, Richard. Super producer Richard Sheltinga. New Hampshire kid over there. Jamie Kaler, where can people see you, find you, look uh, at you? Google Jamie Kaler, but on instant uh, Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook. Instagram. Is at Jamie Kaler. But I do the Dadlands now, so I know you just heard horrible stories of my youth. Right. Of bullying and almost killing women. And that's not, I didn't almost right. kill, but yeah, but horrible Where can they find stories. the Dadlands? The Dadlands are on Facebook or just Google the Dadlands because it's, uh, it's got its own website. And okay. that's, it's all now my old humor of drinking and partying has been replaced with oh I'm a parent and I don't sleep and so come enjoy that especially if you're a parent it's good stuff people check it out the Dadlands Jamie Kaler Richard Sheltinga Brendan Smith signing off until next time cats and kittens (laughs) 